This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news and media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. Since this is our last episode for 2016, we decided that we were going to take a look back at some of the big stories that came up during this year, as well as maybe take a bit of a look ahead to what we will expect in 2017. We're going to go across the different industries that we've talked about. We're going to talk about TV, film, music, theater, and more business-related stories in general. So, Amanda, this has been a big year in media stories. Where do we even begin? I was surprised in some ways as I was going back and recalling that actually all of this had transpired in 2016. So you're right, it has been a big year. Now, what do you think is the biggest story of the year? I think 2016, in terms of, of the histories of media, will be recalled as as a, a turning point in understanding the limitation of advertising as the business model for internet distributed media. And so certainly that's hit, in, hit journalism in particular. Oh, yeah. But this is, it's been a tough year for industries that hadn't been held really to account, uh, that whose value was largely based on the perception that the advertisers would just keep coming. This year was sort of the beginning of the expectation of some returns, and, and it didn't go well. I mean, digital advertising prices, did they grow all that much, if at all, from where they were? And even if they did grow, they were at such a low level to begin with that, you know, if you're the New York Times, you can't make the same profit off of digital advertising. You just can't. The money's just not there. Right. And we've talked about this before, how there is this fundamental difference about the digital advertising environment, which is that there is no capacity limitation. In the same way that there were only so many pages in a newspaper or magazine, there were only so many 30-second spots you could buy in TV. Well, you could, th in theory, put as many as you want, but viewers are going to get tired. No, but the networks weren't doing that, yeah. right? And so so there was it's a supply and demand question. And so that dynamic doesn't play out in digital. And I, I think also a, a sense of some of the original mechanisms for digital advertising, like banner ads, just the recognition that these things just don't work. Uh, so I think, At least not to the same capacity that they are expected to. Yeah. And so I think the digitally distributed companies are being forced to look at their models in a different way. But I think the other side of that has been the growth in subscriber-funded services and that we're seeing not just in video now, but even in print, mm -hmm. as this is the second or third year now that the New York Times has been more heavily supported by subscription than advertising. And I, I think we're in the midst now of this. I think it's possible to ha see some actual attention to different business strategies now that we've gotten beyond sort of the heady early days of believing, oh, advertising will take care of it all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Facebook and Google. Yes. Be because these two companies both had big years, especially in terms of how just the number we have down 75% of their digital of the digital advertising money is going to those two companies. Right. And that's a that's a number that I heard several times in various industry conferences over the year and and you know that has some really significant implications for companies whose name isn't Google or Facebook. And I'm yeah. not sure what Google revenue that is. I think I'm not, I believe that that's the AdWords revenue. Yeah, that, that would make sense is that it's the um, money that's coming from their advertising placements around the internet. 
But what we're starting to see is Facebook in some ways playing a bit of a different role. And I don't think that we're going to call it the story of 2016. It might be the story of 2017. But this shift to in degrees of from Facebook as this pure social media space to being understood more as a legacy media entity. And so the reason that I, I've held off of considering Facebook in terms of legacy media is because they'd put no money into content creation. Right. But somehow, um, not somehow, um, but what Facebook has managed to do is really put itself as a central middleman for the distribution of anyone else's content. And that's why Facebook has such a significant role um, or is taking such significant uh, digital advertising earnings. And that is coming very much at the expense and at the consequence of the companies that are paying the journalists, paying the artists to create the content. And I'm, you know, my sense is that that is not tenable in the long term. I mean, we talked earlier this year about Facebook instant articles, and it's a very simple idea that you essentially load your article into Facebook. So if you're scrolling through Facebook, you don't have to leave Facebook to read the article. And Facebook just really has taken over, you know, you said it, they're taking it over the distribution of content. I know for a lot of news media, their number one source for traffic is Facebook. Right. And so that, I I think it really, uh, and, and the reason why that, yes, it's fantastically convenient for you, the reader, but it is significantly detrimental to who's getting the advertising dollars. Yes, this, you know, it may seem great for now, but, you know, in three years, if a number of these content creators have gone out of business because the amount of money they're getting back from Facebook isn't adequate to pay for the content creation costs, um, that, that will be yet another shift in this this ongoing story of uh, the new dynamics of content creation and distribution. Uh, absolutely. Now, we talked a little bit about some of the acquisitions that happened this year, but when you write them down in a list, it, was it a really big just seems like there was so many of these big deals that either went through or didn't. Yes, and mostly did. I mean, yeah. they were, they we're still pending the big one, but um, just to look back real quickly, Verizon acquired Yahoo and AOL. AT&T, technically, it was a 2015 deal, right? But um, we we saw the outcome of AT&T's purchase of DirecTV and the launch just in the last few weeks of the DirecTV Now service, which I think we'll be talking about some more. Um, And then AT&T announcing its intended or desired purchase of Time Warner for uh, upwards of $85 billion plus some debt. There's Charter and Time. On the distribution side, a pure distribution play, Charter buying Time Warner and Bright House at 55. Time Warner Cable. Time Warner, Let's make that clear. Yep. Uh, on the content side, uh, Lionsgate and Stars at $4.4 billion. Comcast, Comcast and, and DreamWorks. DreamWorks. Yeah, 3.8. So it was unquestionably a big year in terms of, of these acquisitions and you know the idea of having potentially the, the Time Warner uh, acquisition really would takes that over the top in terms of, of just a tally. And But I think the important thing in, in looking back, it's not just that these happen, but talking about and thinking about why these mergers matter. We've seemed to be in an era of media consolidation for a a little while now. I mean, we had NBC, Comcast, and we've had a few big deals kind of come through in the past few years. But looking at, you know, AT&T going after Time Warner, that's huge. Even Comcast DreamWorks, like DreamWorks was an independent studio 
who relied on distributors to distribute the content pr- produced it themselves. Now they're one and the same with, you know, Chris Melisandre. Is that how you pronounce his name? Chris Melisandre, the person behind uh, Despicable Me at Illumination Entertainment. I mean, that that's big for animation in and of itself. I mean, the, we seem to be bringing a lot of things together this year. And, and I think this is about preparing for the next era. And, you know, I think one of the big things that we'll be watching for 2017 is is the new regulatory environment, which we're going to have under a new administration and in a new FCC. And granted, that that will only affect, or will mainly affect the broadcast space. Um, Certainly the new administration, it'll be a new Department of Justice as well, who's going to, that's going to New Department of Justice, new FCC, depending on how um, President-elect Trump builds these out. Right. There's a lot of uncertainty, I'd say, going forward. But if we take that piece out and, you know, all of these mergers took place pre-election, I think what the evidence is was that these companies are were building and preparing for an era in which it was valuable to hold own distribution assets and that, you know, the AT&T Time Warner deal has a lot of people sort of curious about what what the play was there. But I think what the possibility of that play is becomes even clearer with a different regulatory environment that might not include net neutrality. Uh, and then all of a sudden we really do start to see the way that it's not just scale that's important going forward, but the idea of exclusivity and the right. ability of distributors to uh, limit access to different content based on what's owned. and Essentially take ownership of all the content they have and distribute it themselves. I mean, that's what an AT&T Time Warner company would be able to do to a certain extent. Right, and make it very difficult if you are not an AT&T customer right. to access that content potentially or make it very expensive if yeah. you're not an AT&T customer. So it will be a new, potentially a new era of competition and competitive strategy. So definitely looking at that going forward. And we also have some investments that major investments that we want to talk about as well. I mean, Disney invested four hundred million into Vice, NBC Universal four hundred million into BuzzFeed, and two hundred million into Vox. We also had um, Univision's acquisition of Gawker and Turner's investment into Refinery Twenty Nine, and, and who invested into, into, into Mashable as right. well. Yeah, it's for, to, I think. What's interesting to me is is the way in which some of the categories that we've had to date, I think, start to get a little questionable when we see these kind of acquisitions. There was definitely the sense that there was legacy media and then there was new media. But if Disney is funding Vice extensively, if NBC is deeply invested in BuzzFeed, are are Vice and BuzzFeed still quote-unquote new media? I I mean... To me, it just seems like old media trying to get in on this new media trend. I mean, it just seems like they're trying to essentially say, oh, this is a new thing that we don't necessarily have an investment in. You know what? Let's get in on this. We have money. Let's put it into these companies and see where they're going to go. Absolutely. This is research and development by acquisition. And so in some cases, some of these legacy media companies have tried to play in this new space by developing it themselves and not been particularly successful. But I think a year ago, we could have had a, a similar list of, of what we were then calling the multi-channel networks. Right. You know? Similarly, these companies that developed organically in the digital environment that within time, as soon as they proved themselves decently successful, uh, found themselves part of giant legacy media conglomerates. So uh, I think we have to be careful going forward about trying to, to make assertions about what is old media and new media because it's all just big media. And that may be very well be where we're going. So let's get a little bit more industry specific here and talk about the TV industry. 
Um, we've talked a lot about this, but we have some kind of questions that we're, we kind of want to hit here and kind of see what some of the big stories in the industry mean for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, is there a new hit this fall? This is us. This is us. This is us yeah. is doing very well. It's growing about it's growing about a full point in the eighteen to forty nine demo off its voice lead in, and it's really established itself as a solid, dependable hit that gets, you know, a two eight, two nine, and te- eight ten million viewers every week. I mean, that's that's about as big as you're gonna get, and the show stands the show stands on its own, and NBC can't help but be very very happy about how that show's doing. I mean, it's probably the only big hit to come out of the networks this year. I mean, there have been some smaller hits. Kevin Can Wait and Man with a Plan are doing decently. Um, Designated Survivor is doing a little bit better than what Nashville did. And then there are things like Pitch, which are really not doing very well at all. Actually, Speechless is doing quite well for ABC in their Wednesday comedy block, which just seems to be very dependable. But really, the only big hit to kind of stick out of this fall was This Is Us. Well, in in many ways, having a single big hit is... Notable. Um, yeah, it's like when Empire premiered a year and a year and a half ago, two almost two years ago now. I mean, that was a huge story just because of how big it was and how it kept growing. Where the big story this fall is a show premiered well and held. Right. Like it didn't drop; it just held its number. It has an audience coming back every week after week. Maybe all that Olympic promotion paid off. Yeah, or maybe, <laughs> um, or maybe you know, there's something about that show that you know is kind of. You know, it's a family drama a la Parenthood with Mm -hmm. cliffhangers and with interest in the ongoing story. I mean, the pilot ends with a huge twist and every episode seems to end with some sort of cliffhanger. I mean, it's kind of narratively propelling you to come back every week. And this is one of those cases where that kind of storytelling is working. But otherwise, the networks debuted a lot of new programs and aren't seeing a lot of love. No, there, again, there are some things that are doing okay, but, you know, something like Speechless, Silly slips right into where the Goldbergs were and, you know, it's holding up what about what the Goldbergs were doing last year, maybe a tad below. But yeah, no, there really hasn't been a whole another huge hit on all of This Is Us. And... Well, and then the related story has to do with sports ratings. Yeah, the NFL's <laughs> ratings, you know, that I've seen so many stories. The NFL yeah. is down, the NFL is down, the NFL is down. And, you know, in the primetime big national windows, the ratings overall are down. Many others have already offered a lot of reasons, perhaps. You know, everything from our obsession or the, the degree to which the election had taken all the oxygen out of the room to Colin Tom Brady's... Uh, or Tom Brady. Tom Brady's suspension. Or uh, Colin Kaepernick's protests. I mean... To me, it seems to be matchup-based. Like, a lot of these primetime matchups were not very exciting, but when the Giants and the Cowboys play in Sunday Night Football, the audience shows up, and mm-hmm. NBC happened to get lucky. The Giants-Cowboys, the game, well, it was last night as we were recording this, was a very close game the entire way, very dramatic, and, you know, that game brought in big ratings. Mm-hmm. And even Ohio State-Michigan. You know, that wow. set, that near... <laughs> an epic game for the an, ages. An epic game for the ages. Very painful ending, but we'll... Uh, <laughs> Michigan fan, the, he, he was short. JT Barrett was short. We know, we all know this. Anyway, 
<laughs> so, I, and I think, so the other part of the sports dilemma uh, is keeping an eye on subscriptions being down as well for ESPN. And so this isn't a space where we'll see a lot of, or expect to see a lot of rapid change because many of these sports, the license agreements are multi-year. The NFLs go into the 2020s, you know, the most recent Big Ten deals go up into the 2020s. And I think it's at least another year or two before another major sports package is up for re- renegotiation. Right. And so the, the pain here will be held by the rights holders and I think yeah. the big question is is what is the state of affairs by the time those renewals come up and I mean for example can ESPN continue offering 1.9 billion to the NFL for Monday night football one playoff game and essentially lots and lots of highlight rights I mean okay. that's a lot for what essentially is like highlights that they can use kind of across their channels and I think it's something like 17, 18 football games a year that aren't even as highly watched as they used to be. Right, but you don't, those deals are written and they were based on information at the time. So oh, we'll yeah. have to keep watching, but if we continue to see these patterns, we, we might expect to see some really significant shakeups. Either stable deals or down deals. I mean, this isn't a story that's going to, you're right, this isn't a story that's going to play out in 2017, but it's definitely something we're keeping an eye on. Right. So in terms of things to watch in the TV realm, you know, Netflix is kind of the perennial story here. There's been a lot of attention paid to the number of originals they're saying they'll have next year and their program budget. Now, I think at the end of the day, that's probably not that big of a story. It's part of, Netflix is part of the television ecosystem now. Mm -hmm. They will continue to be. And I, I think the, 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 the challenge here is, continues to be the, the way, the degree to which Wall Street seems to hold Netflix Amazon uh, and and the other internet distributed service to, to some different standards uh, than than cable and broadcast that are also solid businesses and you know this is important in terms of the money that's available to these companies and so we'll have to continue to see whether at some point. Amazon and Netflix also uh, sort of feel some of the uh, pressure. pressure that has has hit the ad-supported internet distributed services this year. I mean, I had an executive tell me earlier in the year that Netflix, at some point, will start feeling pain from Wall Street, and Wall Street will start asking, you know, they're investing so much into the these original series, what's paying off? Yep. Like, what in what return are you getting for those investments? And, you know... Well, they're that, building a global television network. That, yeah. That, that's not cheap, and that does not happen slowly. And so. it, well, and it, although it does seem like Netflix is releasing series after series, week after week, and not, not just, yeah. you know, small series, really high-profile series, too. But I think that, too, it's, it's part of, of a, a different way of understanding a relationship between television and its audiences, that mm-hmm. it's not about... It launched this week. I have to watch it now. Right. You know, it's it's in the Netflix library. It's going to be there until like, Christmas break. It's, it's like going to be there Cage, next Christmas you know? break. Daredevil. I haven't seen those yet. I'm I'm holding them until you know I have a spare second to breathe, which hasn't seemed to happen recently. So I think you know I I don't I I think it's a new business uh, yeah. and, and and it's one that's not about uh, timeliness in the same way. So we'll have to figure out the new ways of measuring it as well. Let's also talk about, you know, there seem to be a lot of skinny bundles that either have come out, you know, Sling TV, PlayStation View, or there are rumors that they're coming. There's Hulu, there's YouTube, there's DirecTV Now. That just rolled out in the last week. Right. So I think 
I mean, I'm curious to see what happens with Hulu and, and YouTube come the new year. It's clear, and again, these were, these were um, distribution moves that were made in an era that assumed that net neutrality was going to persist. Right. And if that goes away, then you know the, the, the business models behind these companies may not work out in the way expected. Well, but, there would be a huge new cost that they were not accounting for. Right. And so right now, I think you see viewers having more options. But I think what a lot of this is about is a recognition of the 15 to 20 million. And, you know, it's not a, a rapidly growing number of homes without that are choosing not to have cable. But the desire of different networks and channels to be available to the houses that choose to go without cable. And so recognizing that you have to be part of these services, mm -hmm. um, not that this is going to become the new center of your service. So in many ways, I'm pretty skeptical about any linear delivered service, but uh, as these, if these services come to have pretty robust video on demand options with them, then that would be more interesting, I think. It'll be curious to see if those uh, services will be able to access cable networks websites and net broadcast networks websites in the same way that current cable subscribers can, because there's a lot of you know, episodes that are made available online, but only to subscribers. I wonder if they'll kind of, going off of what you said, if they'll play in the same space. Yeah, I'd, I'd expect that if you're not in some way paying a subscription or those dollars that, you know, are connected to TV everywhere, that that, that accessibility would, would go away. What else? So we have, quote, Cable services with a national footprint. Right. So that's the lead out. That's really what the DirecTV Now service is. Right. And I think we can expect to see Comcast playing in that space sooner than later. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that also is a significant reconfiguration of an industry. Cable has been very geographically specific uh, until now. Whoever the cable service provider is in your city is you know, the only one available to you. And so what these, what a service like DirecTV now offers is that you could, you're still going to have the internet provided by whoever has the wires in your street, but you might not be subscribing to them for the cable service right. that you used to have. And so in, in all cases, I think it's, it's important to understand that these changes are generally not going to hurt companies that are providing the internet because they're all dependent on that. Mm -hmm. um, but that the companies that uh, struggle the most in these changes are actually the cable channels because mm -hmm. it, they're losing both in some cases the subscribe, subscriber revenue and the uh, advertising reach. So new dynamics, uh, it would be interesting to see what the cable environment would look like with these with the national providers and what that... In the big picture, this is a realignment of, of the power. Uh, in many ways, we all perhaps um, regularly you know, grumble about our cable providers when we get our cable bills. Um, or but, when you have to call up customer service. Yes, but in many cases, those increasing fees, those are actually coming from the content owners and their mm -hmm. demands for higher rates for every channel and the way in which... You know, there just hasn't been a lot of room for negotiation. And so um, these companies like Comcast or AT&T, DirecTV, keep getting larger partly as a, to help their strategy in negotiating with the content owners. So um, we're rapidly getting to just a few really big ones. Yeah, I mean, if we have another string of acquisitions like Charter and Time Warner Cable or Charter and Bright has that. Yeah. yeah. So broadcast caps. 
That's uh, the the rules that have been in place that limit how many broadcast stations any company can hold. Right now, you can't uh, any entity can't own more than reaches thirty nine percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually can be as few as five stations Depending if they're on in the big ones, are, which yeah. tends to be where uh, the broadcast networks in particular tend to have their ownings. Yeah, like um, NBC, CBS, their owned and owns tend to be you know New York, Los Angeles, right. cities like that. And so um, the idea that uh, new deregulatory FCC uh, that's likely to be one of the first regulations that that they'll go after. I'm not sure how big of a story that is, given the state of the broadcast business and, you know, sort of, I think, the number of questions we've raised. Um, I mean, it's still it's, it's still a business, but I, I think uh, it's a business that I haven't seen exactly where its future is. Mm-hmm. So um, I, perhaps that's less of a, a major story than it, it would have been a few years ago. Now, we have one more question in the TV category, and it's one that's been asked since John Landgraf posed it. At TCA, what was that summer 2015 that he coined peak TV? You know, it's when will the bottom fall out? When will the rapid growth in these produce in the number of series produced fall out, and when will it stop? Right, and so I mean, the idea is that there are far more series being produced right now than has ever been the case. Uh, part of it arguably is th- far more series than one can watch. Definitely, although one doesn't have to watch on schedule anymore, as right. we were just saying. So now it, there's a a bit of a disjuncture here, you know, in terms of trying to understand this notion of the bottom falling out. I mean, because much of the revenue for any given series comes once it goes into syndication sale or after some library sales. Syndication, Netflix, um, DVD, International, the ba- essentially the back end. Right. I think the, the most worrying story on that line that I saw this year was one noting that the amount that cable's paying for to buy old series has, is down this year, and, and that's not surprising. But as that number continues to decrease, if uh, streaming services are not offsetting it's actually there. That's the space of the bottom falling out is when the money coming back into these studios is not enough to yeah. maintain the continued production at the rates that we're seeing. Arguably, I don't know that we need to continue to see television being produced at the, <laughs> at the rates that we're seeing. I mean, I like to watch as much as I can, but if I'm hitting 60 shows and that's a th- an eighth, a th- seventh a sixth of what's being produced that to me is kind of like that's a lot of tv well it starts to accumulate too in a way that you know so yes you know the things that i have on my queue you know they're not all just from 2016 at this point and so i still haven't seen the wire amanda or the sopranos Uh, i'm from i'm from essex county new jersey and i haven't seen the sopranos oh well post-graduation you'll have to make some time exactly post-graduation when i have free time (laughs) so let's talk about the film industry and we've got a few stories that we're trying to keep an eye on here and the first one involves a major studio disney is having an excellent year and it's not like they had a bad year last year no these small little star wars films uh and, you know, this year they have another Star Wars film. They have Rogue One. That's going to open to huge numbers. They're saying about 100 to 130 million. And, you know, they also had Finding Dory, which was the top movie of the summer. They had Captain America Civil War, which was the second best movie of the summer. They had Zootopia, which did extraordinarily well. I mean, they also had a couple of minor flops, like the BFG and Pete's Dragon only did okay. But, man, Captain... 
Civil War, Zootopia, and Moana. Let's not forget about Moana. That's done very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're having, you know, I, I, the comparison I made was to Universal last year, where they just kind of churned out hit after hit after hit. Right. So, I mean, I'm not sure what the, the story to watch there is. It's just that you have the right intellectual property and you have some good creative management and, uh, you can do pretty well in the yeah, film I mean, business Disney still. has at least, um, I think they have two new Pixar movies coming out next year. They have three Marvel movies coming out next year instead of this year's, oh, Doctor Strange also did very well. Like, Disney has Guardians 2. Uh, they're not distributing Spider-Man, but I'm sure, you know, Sony is giving them a little something for kind of bringing Spider-Man back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe fold, and they have, um, they also have Thor Ragnarok, which I'm personally very excited for. Um, the director of what we do in the shadows and hunt for the wilder people directing a Thor and Hulk road trip movie. All right. I'm I'm excited. It's going to be weird. <laughs> it's going to be fun. But let, let's also talk about theater prices and yeah. how they hit a record high this year. Things in the film industry may be looking good from Disney's perspective, but that's certainly not a, a universal story. And, yeah. um, and now, I mean, I think, Paramount had a notoriously bad year this year. Sony's not having the greatest year either. Well, I think it's in many ways connects to this bigger story about the changing nature of film distribution. Right. And I think, you know, by far the story to be watching in this space going into 2017, and it, and it may not actually be a 2017 story, it may take longer, but the the range of exhibitor distributor conflicts, the rise of of services such as screening room. Most recently, he's reading that Apple and iTunes are in, in talks with studios trying to get very, a two week window. I would be very surprised if that happens, given um, the security vulnerabilities of iTunes software and how it would be very easy to kind of rip the movie out of iTunes. Sure. And essentially, you know, then you have, oh, I have an MP4 or M4V of this movie that I can now go and put on the internet. So I would be very surprised to see that specific one happening, at least not without a massive overhaul of the iTunes software. Sure. But it, 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 this has been this perennial conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, Movie theater it, going is expensive. You know, it, co- it can easily cost a family of four $100 to go see a movie together when you include food and the ticket costs. Right. Where box office dollars are look to be flatter up a little bit, most of that is being accounted for by the fact that uh, prices have, have, have gone up. Yeah. And so that means the theater going is actually down a little. And it's not a practice that's growing in the U.S. Uh, fortunately mm-hmm. for these industries, it is growing elsewhere. China, but- especially. China is actually, if it hasn't overtaken the U.S. yet for top film going market, it's going too soon. In other words, there are still people who want to watch movies. Yeah. They just aren't as enthralled with this first window anymore. And at some point, um, rearrange your windows. Uh, and so it'll be... As or you close your window, mm-hmm. as we talked about um, a couple weeks ago on our windowing podcast. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what shakes up in that space. Let's also talk about music. And there are really two big stories that we want to address here. And the first is these streaming services, Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, you know, all these services continue to grow. But I think it's important to understand this is this is not exponential growth. Right. So it was, they're calling it a good year, considering that there was growth instead of, of loss, but um, there was an 8.1% growth in revenue, largely Mostly coming from streaming, the streaming. Yeah. But I think that the bigger issue continues to be that that streaming revenue is not offsetting the purchasing that used to be part of the, the music environment. Mm-hmm. 
However, record-setting years. Um, Adele's album had uh, reached 800... 18 million? 18 million yeah. um, as of May, so that was... Six, so, so that was... It was technically a 2015 launch, but sold you know many more into 2016. I mean, and I'm sure it's even sold more than that. That was a number as of May. We are seven months from May. Right. So, then there's Lemonade, which was a hit in and of itself. That had a huge launch and, and it showed and, in sales. And Drake's views as well. So there were, yeah. the fact that there were three uh, albums this year over a million sold in the U.S. market, uh, the Abdel number was globally. Uh, and that's Those are, are good numbers for an industry that had been in decline. Um, I mean, notably how long it had been. I still teach this uh, talk by Chris Anderson who says... There will never be an album that sells as many as In Sync's uh, No Strings Attached, and Adele certainly topped it. And so, yeah. now if we're what is this, what does all this mean? I mean, it, it means that it is still possible to have mass hits. Oh yeah, um, if you're an artist of a high profile and you haven't, you know, in case of Adele, she hadn't released an album in four years. Beyonce, it had been I think was two and a half, three years since she had released an album, and. But the point is that it's not a business that is overwhelmingly made up of these big hits anymore. No. And so we'll continue to see what goes on with the streaming services. I, I expect there to be a story there next year for sure. And whether or not that's growth or decline is another story. All right. So, Alex, tell me about the biggest story in theater this year. I think I know what the one word is. Um, uh, Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, we've already talked Hamilton to death on this podcast, so I won't delve into that. And we've also talked about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which was a big story that came out of London. That show now has a $50 million advance and is sold out through 2018. The, the story I want to talk about, though, is it's not, you know, a story on the scale of Hamilton, but it is something to keep an eye on. And that's the lengths to which theater owners are going to acquire their shows. So St. James Theater, which is owned by Jujamson, um, one of the smaller theater owners on Broadway... They are bringing in Frozen in spring 2018, and they're going to have shows running there through spring 2017, and then they're going to blow out the back wall of the theater and move it back 10 feet to accommodate Frozen. And on an even larger scale, it was just announced that the Lyric Theater, owned by the Ambassador Theater Group, is going to hold Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Now, the Lyric is a big barn of a theater, 1,900 seats. Shows have struggled to sell out that theater and to be a hit there. But the and Cirque du Soleil actually had some strong, had some mixed results with Paramore. But the Lyric, which had signed a long-term deal with Cirque du Soleil, they're buying them out and they're bringing in Harry Potter. And in the process, they're taking in the back wall of the theater and shrinking the capacity from 1,900 seats to 1,500 seats. Wow, that's a big cut. Yeah, I mean Harry Potter kind of that's about the size that, of the theater that Harry Potter plays in London, but. That's a tens of millions of dollars of investment by these theaters. And they're doing it because they think these shows are going to run for, if not years, then decades. They're thinking these shows can be the new Lion King or Phantom or Wicked that are going to run forever and ever and ever. So we'll have to keep checking back to see whether those prognica prognostications yeah. work out. But uh, certainly big news potentially coming yeah, in the um, theater industry and we'll, as well. know, we'll know about these in 2018. I mean, small changes to theaters are not uncommon, probably most famously, when Studio 54 hosted Cabaret, they ripped out the orchestra, put in sets of tables and chairs and bar stools and things like that. Right now, the Imperial Theater um, with Natasha and the Great Comet of 1812, 
they've kind of taken out, ripped out parts of the seats and, you know, put in tables and chairs, and they're kind of having the show go around all of the auditorium instead of the stage, and that show's selling very well, but mostly because it stars a guy named Josh Groban, who's Ah. kind of a big name. But these deals are huge, and whether or not they pay off is unknown. I mean, we know Cursed Child is a huge hit in London, and clearly the Ambassador Theatre Group is banking that Harry Potter fans will turn out in the same droves in, in, on Broadway. All right, let's shift then to news. Uh, we talked extensively last week about the fact that the election has meant a good year in terms of earnings yeah. for uh, a number of news outlets, um, particularly the cable news space. But now it seems as well that, that news may be on the verge of a bit of an existential crisis. Um, Which one? <laughs> they, yeah. they, they're on the verge of a few, you know, some on the journalistic side in terms of how they're going to approach covering, you know, what lessons they can learn from maybe failures in, 26, in 2015 and 2016 election coverage, if they think there are any failures at all. I'm sure Jeff Zucker is sitting there thinking, you know, why, why did yeah. we fail? We made a lot of money. Right. And so it will be interesting to see in this uh, current news space uh, what the responses are and, and whether you know, the conversations about journalistic strategies uh, get anywhere with the uh, commercial side of, yeah. of the news business. Uh, I mean, there have been a number of stories, actually. And New York Times' a subscribe, subscription rate has been... Um, up significantly just in the last few months, and so since the, and especially since the election happened. So the idea of a subscriber-based journalism perhaps allows an opportunity to get away from some of the horse race reporting, some of the kind of of coverage that we're just sort of being critical of I mean, from more, a journalistic perspective. More money means more investment that they can put into stories. So they can you know invest in someone like David Fahrenthold who spent months combing through Trump's charity. Like, they can invest in investigative reporting like that if they have the money. Right. Certainly another story this year, the that of Gawker's demise. Yeah, the, uh, the huge, you know, judgment they had to pay to Hulk Hogan in that lawsuit, which was backed by Peter Thiel. And then I think the, I, I didn't know where to put this story, but I think we must need, must mention it, which is that of Pokemon Go. Yeah. Um, and the, the augmented reality game that also has been very lucrative with something like 21 million daily active users and 700,000 downloads per day. That, and that was at its launch, which, I mean, that, there, that launch was huge. Like, there, there's no dancing around that. That's one of the biggest at launches I've ever seen in terms of just how the game completely took over yeah. the took over the world in a very unexpected yeah. way right so uh again not falling in our unexpected story of the year undoubtedly there are many trying to chase it and reproduce its yeah. success yeah i mean nintendo who um owns the per- the company that has a 20% stake in the company that made pokemon go is putting out super mario run i mean mario is one of the most popular characters in video sure. games right now and you know, this is their first game on the iPhone. They were very reluctant to produce iPhone games for a long time because they had their own handheld console. Nintendo had right. the DS. So they were reluctant. They, you know, they saw the iPhone as a competitor, sure. but then, you know, they saw that it just wasn't working. Or they saw the $3 million that was being spent on in-app purchases for Pokemon Go and yeah. uh, the $243 million that had been earned by the end of September. Yeah. That's, uh, some <laughs> That's money you can't turn down. No, no. All right, so let's move on to our closeout, closing out our 2016 favorites. Yeah, uh, Alex, it, we're gonna yeah we're ending our year and we're gonna go through. I'm gonna we're gonna both go through some of the things we loved this year, um, and I'm gonna go across a few different mediums first on the stage. So I saw Hamilton. 
I'm, I I can't go without mentioning how amazing that show is, but I wanted to focus on another show, A View from the Bridge. It's Ivan Van Ho's staging of the Arthur Miller classic that ran on Broadway. I technically saw it January 3rd, 2016, which means that, yes, I guess I can count it as seeing it in 2016. Very claustrophobic, very intense, Mark Strong, amazing. You know, I... My friends and I walked out of that theater with bated breath. I also wanted to mention Sing Street, the movie musical. I think I've talked about it before. Movie musical from John Carney. Amazing, sweet. I love that music. Please nominate it for an Oscar for Best Original Song. And on the TV side, I wanted to just touch on two things that I saw this year that I loved. Full Frontal with Samantha Bee and BoJack Horseman. Both great. Samantha Bee was sharp in such an interesting way. You know, she really kind of took over a new voice as a new voice in the late night space and Bojack, you know, intense at its best and and completely hysterical. in a lot of the episodes this year, I mean, the underwater and abortion episodes were amazing. So Amanda, what are some of your favorites from 2016? I know I have a couple that, you know, I really love on your list. Well, I wanted to to share a little love for a, a show that I think was just incredible and was lost in in the volume of peak TV and I think also struggled because it has a name very similar to a, another one that got a lot of attention. Yeah. And that was the second season of American Crime, which aired on ABC and is now available on Netflix and is worth every minute of your time. Um, in my opinion, John Ridley should have won all the Emmys. He was not nominated. But I thought he I thought he was I know American Crime was nominated and Regina King won. Regina King won. Yeah. But honestly, um, you know, and in comparison American Crime Story, that would be the O.J. Simpson one, that was very well done and and entertaining, but um, in terms of really important television, American Crime was just far and above, and I I hope if you didn't get a chance to see it that you take the time and check it out. That honestly is a shot at my number one. Otherwise, just some really interesting things going on in comedy this year. My favorites right now, uh, what FX has been doing with Atlanta and Better Things. And, we're, and I think you also throw in there Aziz Ansari's Master of None, but there's this new space for single-voiced comedy uh, that's really, it's comedy very unlike what we've seen on television before and just some really compelling stories and interesting characters. So I, I think there'd been a lot of attention to the complexity of drama in the early 2000s, and it's exciting to see that the same reinvention happening in comedy now too. A local story, uh, to give some credit to the documentary that, again, was actually produced and aired in 2015, but uh, Michigan Radio's efforts with Not Safe to Drink, the documentary that broke the Flint uh, water story, uh, I think was really important this year. And finally, I, I just a, a little call out to Brian Stelter for trying, in many cases, to keep journalism going um, and, 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 and actually to practice journalism mm-hmm. in an environment in which um, there wasn't always a lot of journalism being practiced. And now it, there were, it was a weird semester that I had this year because I was teaching the television history class for the first time in a long time. And uh, the parallels were, were more than often disturbing as I was going through the 50s and um, being reminded of, of the, the work that Edward R. Murrow had to do in an mm-hmm. environment um, that unfortunately seems increasingly like the one we're in right now. But remembering how important it is for journalists to stand up and to call to account. and I, I, I mean, isn't that the job of a journalist? Brian Stelter, I, I can't agree with you more. He was amazing 
this year. You know, his show Reliable Sources, that's must-watch television now. Yeah, I, I, I remember the days in which it, it, it did something other than cover the election, and I, I've missed those days, but its its role in, in the election coverage has been quite important. And it's keeping it, keeping it up and trying to hold Trump, President-elect Trump, accountable for his actions, you know, ha- questioning how journalists should cover Trump. I mean, these are questions that journalists are going to be weighing for the next four years, or four to eight years, and Brian... He, he's just been amazing. I mean, yeah. and even beyond you know, anything partisan, it, this environment of uh, social media and the way mm-hmm. in which um, it was used to circulate—not journalism, but propaganda—and yep. being calling attention to to that aspect and and calling news organizations Call, to calling, account, for calling it. fake news what it is. So with that, uh, we remarkably find ourselves now with a year of podcasts in in the tank. Um, Thank you to those of you who've been listening to us over the course of the year. We have our favorites, and I hope you'll go back and listen to them in many cases. If you haven't already, yeah. They are, they are, they also, like television today, often don't have to be consumed of the moment, and so you can go back and they're all still pretty relevant. Yeah, a lot I have of to them, say. you know, a lot of them we talk about issues that are rather timeless. Like when we talked about theater and the business of sports, the business of podcasts. I mean, these are these are podcasts that I hope sincerely will be listenable for years to come. And the questions that we discuss there, you know, these are questions that are not going to go away. But we'll be back in the new year to update them as as news breaks and the oh, media absolutely. industries change. We're going to keep on keeping on in the new year. Um, we, I. I know, um, as Amanda said, I'd like to thank everybody listening from the bottom of my heart. You know, this has been an interesting experience to kind of move into a new type of conversation. Um, And so with that, that's it for our 2016 year in review and looking forward at 2017 of Media Business Matters. If you're interested in any of the episodes we just talked about or just kind of want to know more of what we've done this year, you can go back to amandalots.com or search for us in iTunes. You can also subscribe there so when we do return in 2017, the new episodes will pop up right in your feed. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. It's been a great year, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in 2017.